Before we get started with this episode, we want to thank our South by Southwest sponsor, Lost Republic. Badass bourbon and rye distilled and bottled right here in Northern California. Yeah, and the best part about it is it was founded by two best friends, Matt Weiss and Colin Harder, who went to grade school in Santa Rosa, and they really wanted to put California in the map for making great whiskey. And it's made with California wine barrels, and it's freaking delicious. You can find them at lostrepub.com or find it at your local pub or bottle shop and tell them that Bitch Talk sent you. And now for today, we're bringing you day four of our South by Southwest coverage. We have some really great films for you. The featured documentary, Bad Axe and Mama Bears, as well as a documentary short, Not Even for a Moment Do Things Stand Still. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear... Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We are at South by Southwest 2022. We're with director David Siv from the documentary Bad Axe. Thank you so much for being on Bitch Talk. Thank you for having me. Well, David, can you tell our audience what Bad Axe is? Bad Axe is, uh, is my feature-length documentary debut. Um, and it's really a story about, uh, you know, family, hope, love, resilience, and, you know, the American dream and uh, what the American dream, you know, looks like, you know, in the year 2020 when we just all went through, you know, one of the most uncertain times uh, we ever have together. Um, so, um, yeah, my, my dad, he's, he's a Cambodian refugee who came here during the late, uh, seventies and my mom is Mexican American. And, um, you know, the two of them really laid the foundation and, uh, you know, as a family, we, we built this American dream together, that being our restaurant. So, um, uh, and it's located in the town of Badax. So, uh, yeah, the film is, is about our family and our restaurant just trying to make it through some really tough, uncertain times. David, you know, when it's all said and done, we we will have covered 16 shorts, films, docs, narratives. And I, I think this was my favorite that we've covered. Um, it's so emotional, relatable. I was crying from being mad and angry and then from also joy like you kind of put us through the ringer in a good way <laughs> um and, and you've documented such an important time not just for us mm-hmm. living through this pandemic as asian americans but for your own family which i would argue is even more important for them to have this this beautiful time capsule of this moment um and i like how we see your family struggling with your decision to film them in real time on camera uh, but did you ever struggle with am i doing the right thing or or did you always know that there was a greater purpose for this film yeah i i think i i did struggle with it you know back and forth because you know i i knew it was like important for us to share our story and our perspective but like at what cost does that come at right like when you're getting phone calls from from actual neo-nazis and um letters and you know people saying they're going to stop supporting your restaurant you know there comes a point where it's like okay like do we continue on doing this 
Um, or, you know, the, the, a real conversation came up, like, do we shelf this film for a few years when, you know, things maybe quiet down a little bit? Um, but ultimately, you know, it was a decision that was made as a family and um, that, you know, it was important for us to share our story and get it out there. And I think that was something I always advocated for. But no, like internally, it was like, oh, God, I, I don't know if if this is the right thing to do. But um, after, you know, just being in the edit for months and months on end and, you know, really hearing the feedback from, you know, my mom and my dad and Jacqueline, um, it really was a, like a, a like a family effort um, to make this film. And, you know, as a director, you're in the driver's seat because you're getting pulled in so many different directions of my mom has this opinion. Jacqueline has this opinion. <laughs> um, you know, Mike, my brother-in-law has this opinion and my fiance has this opinion. So, you know, you're, you're hearing everybody's ideas and they don't always like match up and agree with one another. Um, so for me, it was just important to make sure I was respectful to, uh, to everyone's input, but at the end of the day, you know, um, I'm the one who has to make those decisions of what to include and, and what not to include. But at the end of the day, it, it seems like we as a family felt like, you know, the story is the best it can be. And, and I feel that way. And, um, that, uh, it, it, it is really important for us to share a story and, and put it out there in the world. Um, speaking of decision making, I was wondering um, if, if you don't mind sharing, what was the decision to go back home to Bad Axe um, with your now now fiance or you? Now fiance, yeah, we're getting married in in like two months. So. Congrats! Oh, but when when did you guys make that decision, and was it an easy easy decision to make? You know, I I think it was that first week is just kind of a blur um because we did just get off a cruise ship from uh oh that's right <laughs> yeah. oh my god so we just right. got off a cruise ship and this was like the first week of march or something crazy we go back to new york my whole family goes back to michigan and um while we were on the cruise is like when news like when serious news started to break out about covid and we we're like okay like let's let's watch this let's monitor this and I remember when the cruise ship docked, we just like ran off because <laughs> like we heard about other ships, you know, being being stuck, I think, like off the coast of like California and stuff. Uh, so we got off that cruise ship. And then so we came back to New York and we were here for like five days just kind of talking about, OK, like what's going to happen? Like they just send us home from work. Um, and, and I think it was so uncertain that um I brought up the idea of going back to Bad X and my, my fiance, girlfriend at the time was like, I don't know, like, let's wait it out. And, you know, I'm talking to my dad, as you've seen in the film, like for him, he's, he's, he's all about survival, you know, like, this is what you need to do to survive. And I'm like, I really think we should go home. And eventually we both are like, all right, like, let's book a flight tomorrow. Let's get out. Um, and so we packed our bags and we were like uh, two of maybe six or seven people on the plane. And, and that was it. And we didn't know how long we were going to be there for. I mean, we knew we just wanted to be with family in case things were going to go bad. And, you know, Bad Axe, Michigan, you know, population less than 3000 people, probably a lot safer than than and easier to get resources than, than being in, you know, New York City. Um, so it was just like an instinctual decision that, you know, as soon as we both agreed, I mean, we left the next day and not knowing when we were going to come back. Cause we just signed an apartment lease a week before. Oh, this. God. oh <laughs> um, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, there's nothing we could do about it. So we, we paid for a very expensive storage unit for about. 
you went on a cruise and you signed an apartment lease, like two of the worst things you could have done like right at, that <laughs> at that time. <laughs> the timing is impeccable, David. Yeah. No, but timing I, is impeccable. Yes. No, but I'm glad you brought up Mike and your fiance, because I kind of feel like Mike is an unsung hero in this oh. film, because look, I come from a close knit, tight family, big family as well. And it's not easy to be the partner of somebody who's like, you don't understand my family is always going to be a top priority, you know, take right. it or leave it. Um, so I'm wondering if you and your siblings, if they're, if your partners have all formed some sort of support group to deal with <laughs> yeah. when the family's going through it, like, all right, let's go in our corner in our safe corner. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you bring up Mike as an unsung hero. He's actually an executive producer on the film as well too, uh, because he just handles like all business things for me. So credit to him. Um, and then, you know, my fiance is also my producing partner. Um, so, you know, she's been an instrumental part of the process along the way. Um, so, you know, the two of them actually, I feel like, um, very much have like a special bond that <laughs> nobody else in our family has, because, you know, when all this commotion, all this tension is happening, it's really, it's just like them, like, Hey, like that was crazy. Like just kind of decompressing <laughs> like with each other, but no, Mike, Mike, I mean, he's, he's the best, um, yeah, just just such a supporter of, of Jacqueline in so many ways. And, you know, I think it's obvious in the film that Jacqueline's family comes first and and not like in a bad way, but like in a way where I think that's what makes Mike so perfect is that he always knows that like the siblings and the parents come first. And I think it's just like a, a part of Asian culture in a in a weird way, too, that that's kind of hard to explain. But um but no, I mean, he, he's an unsung hero. My fiance, also an unsung hero. I mean, uh, I don't blame it when the two of them, they just, you know, they have a special bond that that no one else quite will will have in our family, which is which is kind of neat. So, I mean, I was rooting for Mike's mustache. I'll tell you what you can tell him. <laughs> I was fine with it. <laughs> You'll be happy to hear that. Well, like, yeah, it's a good look. <laughs> He just, you know, he, and and that's like a, a, a part of the role he plays in the family. Like he, when when tensions are high, like you know, it, it's usually me or him that will be the one that tries to to crack the joke. And um, um, so yeah, you know, that's that's what he does. I mean, the mustache thing. It, it was like one of those moments where he's like, "Does the film need it?" I mean, a lot of people said no, but for me, I'm like, no, I think it does. Like, I think it's important to show Mike's character, and I think it it, it was also just a a nice sweet moment where you like you just see everybody in the room all at once just kind of laughing over something so stupid so but it was also like a pandemic thing remember everyone yeah. all a lot of dudes were just everyone was yeah. growing all the things letting it hang no yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> right um, exactly yeah it's just one at that moment in time you're like oh yeah everyone was doing that too um there's a lot of vulnerabilities in this film um but your father's vulnerability really was kind of the shining star. Um, I mean, Jacqueline's a whole other conversation. We're going to get to Jacqueline. And she's going to probably ask that question. <laughs> Can you talk about your dad's vulnerability when the camera was on him? Because yeah, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but he no, did it, it. it. It wasn't it wasn't easy. I mean, excuse me. Um, growing up, like we, we rarely saw my dad ever get emotional. Um, I remember the first time I ever saw him cry was when my ma, my, or my grandma, um, went to a, a, in a coma, like a few months before she passed away. And that was, and it just burns in your memory for the first time when you see your, your, your dad specifically cry. And, um, you know, these past two years, it's just allowed him to, 
Um, I think just one, you know, one part being at home and not having a whole lot to do has allowed him to really like sit with his thoughts and um, especially with the pandemic, just bringing back past trauma. Um, and so the, the camera in a way, like it's, it's so therapeutic for him. I mean, um, he, you know, it, he is talking to me, you know, his son, but um, at the same time, it's, it, those moments are just so raw and real because these are things I've never heard before. These are when he admit that he has a problem in everything. I mean, that's huge for him. Like, like, you know, my dad was someone who I think suppressed emotions and his vulnerability for so long. And like the process of making this film and, and turning the camera on him. I mean, it's almost like he just wanted somebody to listen. And I mean, we were always there to listen, but I mean, it was, it was just, it was just so interesting. Like, what pointing the camera did on him where he just opened up so much and and it's great now you know like especially as he's becoming a grandpa like it's nice seeing him being so vulnerable and him knowing it's okay to be vulnerable and I think that's a big step with him putting this movie out there is you know I mean everybody looks at Sean as being you know this that's that's a badass Bruce Lee Mm -hmm. Sean over there but he has a soft and vulnerable spot and and that comes from you know um, very much, I think the background uh, of being like a refugee and, and having just experienced something completely different that none of us, um, you know, will ever have to. So it, it was um, it was therapeutic for him. I think making this film and uh, just feeling like somebody was really listening and, um, and and now you know putting it out there. So I can't believe he never shared any of that with you before. That's insane. Um, and and what a Again, going back to what I said earlier, just how special this is just for your family to have this moment together encapsulated in time. Um, But yes, let's talk about Jacqueline because we can't (laughs) leave without talking about her. She is such a badass. Um, And we see some really tough moments with her, just, you know, tough family moments, but also the protest scene. Uh, and, And I wanted to know as as the brother and director, what is it like for you to stand behind the camera and just not really be able to interact or help? Or, you know, did you have to fight with that? Or were you really focused on this is my job right now? It, it, it was a battle because um, J- Jacqueline and I are, are incredibly close. And a lot of times when you see those fights between Jacqueline and my dad, I mean, you know, we had many of those fights during the pandemic. The ones we included the film just happened to be on camera. Um, so there are a lot of times where I do find myself almost playing the role of my mom and being like a mediator between um, my dad and Jacqueline. And, you know, with Jacqueline, like, I think the bond we share is that um, uh, I'm very much, we're very much able to like console in each other. Um, So, you know, those moments when I would have normally, you know, may have stepped in or, uh, have given my opinion. Um, it was a bit tough because it's like, because I originally never intended myself to be part of, part of the film, you know, it just, that was just something that happened in the edit room. And, um, and so, you know, when those moments, those very vulnerable and raw moments happen, um, it was a juggle. It's like, okay, like, do I interject or do I just stand behind the camera and, you know, let these, these moments play out. And it, it, it was kind of like a little bit of both, you know, like, um, I would have to put the camera down like after the fights and like Jacqueline and I would talk about it. And like, you kind of hear a little bit of that talk while she's driving home after that second, after the, after the fight at the restaurant. Um, So yeah, I mean, it it was a challenge, you know, playing that role of brother versus like also playing that role of director Um, because 
there was like no barrier there. Like when Jacqueline's talking to me, like she's not talking to a camera. She's not putting on, she's just talking to her brother, David, who always happens to have a camera on him. So. Hey, <laughs> okay, before I wrap, the last question I want to ask is I love the end credits with your dad singing. Was that, when did you make that choice? Because I love it so much. I love your dad singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You thought you were done loving the family and then yeah. you, hit us, you hit us with that. Loved it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, you know, that song plays twice in the film. Once when we're playing it acoustically and then in the box burning scene, uh, the original by Sin Sleuth is, is playing, um, and so if so the decision to actually include that song um, in the credits actually came after my niece uh, Rhea was born because he would just go around the house singing it to her and it, and it's like her lullaby it, it very much is her lullaby um so um so yeah that's that's why th- this song has become so important in our family like I feel like over like the past year um especially with with the, now the babies it just is being their lullaby so we're like oh this would be a really fun like end credit song to to share at the end of the movie and, and that's why we included it so it was perfect oh thank you thank yeah. you yeah well thanks so much for coming on bitch talk david um we've been speaking with david Siv the director of Bad Axe, which I need to mention won a special jury recognition for exceptional intimacy and storytelling at South by Southwest. So thank you so much for being on the show. We love, love, love this film and we will see it on Netflix. I mean, I'm just going to say it right now. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see what happens. (laughs) But uh, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk with the both of you. Uh, This was fun. We are here at South by Southwest 2022, bringing you a beautiful documentary that we just watched called Mama Bears. And we are sitting down with the director, Darisha Kai, and one of the subjects of the film, Tammy Terrell Morris. Welcome to Bitch Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So happy to have you. Uh, We'll start with our director here, Darisha. Can you introduce Mama Bears to our audience? Uh, Mama Bears is a feature-length documentary about how the lives of conservative Christian moms are transformed, like utterly transformed, when they decide to accept their LGBTQ children. Uh, A lot of these moms risk losing friends, family, congregation, sometimes husbands, to affirm and love their children. And the film focuses on two Mama Bears and a young lesbian who struggle for self-acceptance perfectly exemplifies why the mama bears are so important. And that would be Tammy. And Darisha, how did mama bears, how did, um, Darisha, how did mama bears find you or how did you find them? Yeah, we found each other. So I was, um, coming, what my, my last feature link film, Chavela was, had just come out. And, um, I thought I really need to strike while the iron is hot and come up with another project. And so I was doing some research and I came across an article about Kimberly and Kai Shapley and their fight Mm -hmm. for Kai to use the girl's bathroom in her school district in Pearland, Texas. And in that article, Kimberly mentioned that she had found the strength to go from being a tea party Republican to an LGBTQ (laughs) advocate through the mama bears group. And she said there were 2000 moms in that group. And I thought, what? Who are these women? And I have to find out more about them. And that was it. That was the beginning of the journey. I reached out to uh, Liz Dyer and um, Susan Cottrell, who had two different Mama Bears groups. 
to put me in touch with the mama bears. I told them, you know, I feel like these women are he heroic and what they are doing is the hero's journey because I know that um, they have to go through the dark night of the soul, right? Mm. In order to, to get from where they start to where they become advocates and allies, like ferocious allies for the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. And so that's how it all started with an article in the Huffington Post. <laughs> wow. As many good things do. Yes. And um, Tammy, I want to turn to you because it's so special when we get to talk to subjects of these documentaries, because you're not an actor. You know, you didn't you didn't uh, right. know necessarily that this this was going to um, this story was going to come to you. Um, and and your story was certainly the one that I related to the most, you know, growing up Catholic Catholic school. The, the whole thing and, and certainly the Catholic guilt that is still within me when it comes to my own sexuality, even to this day. So thank you for saying yes to this film because your story really resonated with me. Um, but, but I wanted to know, mm, thank how, you know, thank the both of you. Um, yeah. Emotionally, really. Um, I want to know how it was for you to open up so publicly and how becoming part of this project has, has changed you and your outlook on things. Wow. So I have to take a deep breath when I'm thinking about uh, my experience with the Mama Bears documentary because it has been life birthing. Um, I often say like in my testimony, I didn't realize that I had come to a place where I was just kind of navigating through life, not really living it. Um, I felt like I was keeping all my balls in the air, so to say, and um, I was doing what was expected of me as a young black Christian uh, woman at the time, and I, I was married with kids. And so I was knocking down everything on the list of what I had to be and what I had to do, and yet I had no joy. I was falling further and further into depression. Um, and as you can see in the Mama Bear's documentary, it was a traumatic event that kind of shook me awake. And it was in that traumatic event that I started to realize that I had to take some bets on myself and I had to take some risks. And that's when I started um, looking for more information on the LGBT plus community and looking for people who were lifting their voice and telling their truth. And that's, it ran me into the Reformation Project, which led me to the Mama Bears, which eventually led me to Miss Darisha here. And it has been a eye-opening, like, foundation shattering <laughs> experience. And to be totally honest, I'm in the midst of it, but I'm, I'm still very nervous. People have asked me like, how did you find the courage? And I'm like, I'm, I'm walking it out. <laughs> it, it's this moment. It's right now, it's, it's me choosing to speak up and, and say that I am who I am and here's my story and present it to the world. Um, so yeah, I, that's the birth of it, of it all for me. And Tammy, can I ask if you're comfortable with this? Um, in what specific ways the Mama Bears group has has helped you? Wow. So Mama Bears, I think as Darisha has pointed out so beautifully, they are a group of women that are willing to go to war for the people that they love. They are willing to lay down their lives, literally their communities, their support, essentially. Um, it's very interesting because I found out about mama bears without knowing that there was a potential woman in my uh, uh in my life she's an ex-supervisor of mine and she was actually the first mama bear of my life i found out that she was a part of the group years later 
but it was mm. so cool and she's so proud of, of where I'm at right now. Um, and that's my mama Lisa. If she listens to this, mama Lisa, I love you. You know it to life. But she was one of the first people in my life who said, Tammy, I accept you as you are. You don't have to hide. You can be who you want and, and people will still love you. And she was doing that for her children who were a part of the LGBT plus community. Um, so for me, Mama Bears was everything because it became a sense of support where I had no support. And it wasn't that I was dismissed by my family. It was just in that aspect of my life. They were unwilling to make a stance on it. They were unwilling to speak up and say some things uh, that I needed. I needed that support. I needed to know that my family had my back and Mama Bears, they were there, there to do that. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, Jerisha, can you talk about when you're working on a documentary like this for so many years and you're forging relationships with all of your subjects? You know, this documentary is all about power and, and strength and community. Right. Can you talk about just the relationships that are built just from you creating this documentary? And are, are you still in contact with everyone? Like, is this is this just uh, you're following the mama bears now? Are you part of the the hugs tour? <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, um, you know, the making of a documentary is like expanding your family, because um, I mean, I think there are some people who make films and they once the film is over, that's it. That's the end of the relationship. But for me, um, the relationship is for life, you know? I mean, I, I, I can only make movies about uh, subjects that I fall in love with, right? Subject matter that I fall in love with, that I feel passionately about. I mean, because, you know, making a movie is, is a hell of a commitment. It requires everything you've got. And so if you're, not, if you're not passionate about it, if you don't love it, if you don't, if you don't have to make this story, which, you know, I feel, you, I feel like it's, it's a calling. Right. And so for me, um, the people that I want to make films about are game changers, are brave, heroic people who are uh, willing to risk to make change, to to make a better world. And so I love them, you know, and and they tend to love me back. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I am not doing a free mom hugs tour, but I (laughs) I'm also the mother of a queer child. A young adult now. Um, and so I've joined the Mama Bears group because I'm a mama bear. And um, I am friends with Tammy and Kimberly mm-hmm. and Kai and Sarah and Liz, you know, like we're family now. So there's no, there's no um, cutoff. There's no like separation. There's no like your, and, and I don't actually use the word subject. I use the word participant, collaborator. Those are the words that make more sense to me because we are collaborating. Like, you know, how many times did I come to you, Tammy, and say, we need to shoot some of this. Are, can you do this? Can you do that? Can, you, can we come back to your house? Right. It was a conversation. With the kids? Right. It's a conversation and a collaboration. <laughs> and, so. and yeah, I was going to say we'd be remiss without asking Tammy how, how your mom's doing. Mom is doing great. <laughs> I actually spoke to her before we did this interview um, because I, I wanted to get it right. I was like, Mom, what do you want me to say if they ask about it? <laughs> I said, I don't want to get in trouble. So the bad bitch talks, they're not going to get me in trouble. I'm like, getting no whooping today. <laughs> Good move. She was, Good move. You know what? And she was, she was so excited for me, honestly. She said, please let 
the ladies know how honored she was that you guys asked her to be a part of this. Uh, at this time, she's going through a lot of transition with my family and the selling of, of my grandmother's home who passed away mm-hmm. last year. So she, she's in a bit of an emotional place. But I, I want to kind of tackle back on something Darisha mentioned earlier about the, the dark night of the soul. I've seen my mom kind of go through a transition since she's been a part of the Mama Bears. And even though she did have to back out at a certain point, that transition didn't stop. That process is still going. Her heart is still uh, developing. And she has opened her eyes greatly to the struggles of the community. Um, And she told me to let you guys know that she loves and supports her daughter. She is rooting me on. Mm. Um, She still stands on what she believes. But but the love is real. And and honestly, I tell her as a daughter, that's all I can ask for at this point. So, you know, I want to say about um, Tanita that even though she dropped out of the film, what has always impressed me about her is that it was very, very important to her that this message of you can disagree with your child and still (laughs) love them. That's what got her involved in the first place is that she was committed to getting that idea out. And even though she dropped out of the film, not once did she say, take me out of the movie. That was never anything that she asked me to do that. She, she it never, it just, you know, I mean, she could have, you know, I mean, even though she signed a release, I would have respected her wishes. It would have fucked up the movie. Right. But- <laughs> it would have been, been rough. It would have been rough. Storyline is wrong. Right. We may not have been talking to Tammy. Or you would have had an actress, an actress mom. Yeah, stand in mom. Right. Darisha would have to they step in. Me out yeah. together. Or it would have been bad. But you know, I would have respected that because I'm not gonna put somebody yeah. in a movie, you Mm-mm. know, that's gonna affect their life mm-hmm. if they're unwilling. And she never said that, not once, you know. Every time but I mean and you can bet every time we filmed with Tammy, I was like, So Tanita, can we shoot you now? <laughs> yeah. Are you free now? Just a little. Has anything shifted? <laughs> Can we come to Come on, girl. Come on. Come on. You know you want to do this. <laughs> uh, let me say about Darisha's the, the approach is so on point because when, when she says that she really becomes family to us, it's true. You know, at the end of the day, when she would come, it was like, okay, y'all come on in here. Mom's still saying hey and giving hugs and, you know, cause, because it becomes a family project. So. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, uh, uh, you know, I have two nephews that are also gay and I would love for them to sit down with their parents, with me. And we we all watch it together. And even, you know, even the religion part aside, it's just it's just you accept your child and you just want them to be happy. Um, and, and I think that, that that's just a really powerful message. And I'm wondering if, you know, we have to wrap soon, but are there any plans for this film to help parents and children in that sense? Like, through some sort of therapy program or in schools, because uh, I, I would have loved to have this film mm. as, as a kid going through what I was going through. Well, we have a pretty robust impact campaign that we're looking for funding for now to take the film out to communities with mama bears and with the participants of the film. Um, and we're creating um, materials, you know, support materials for so that people can have their own conversations around it we want to provide um, nonviolent communication training to our moms and to Tammy so that we all know how to diffuse situations so that we can have conversations without them escalating into arguments and um, take the film to churches that are um, 
on the fence about accepting the LGBTQ community and have real heart to heart, you know, conversations. Um, so yeah, we definitely intend to have a robust Im impact campaign with this film. But one more thing I wanna say about Tammy and Tanita is it was always, from the very beginning of making this film, I was looking for a black family to participate mm -hmm. because the black community and the Christian black community and their relationship to the LGBTQ community has always been somewhat contentious, you know? And we sort of have this don't ask, don't tell philosophy within the black Christian community. And I wanna kind of break that open. And I also think that it's really important that black people see themselves in this conversation as participants in this conversation. So initially I thought Tammy was a mama bear because I saw a post from her mm -hmm. and I saw her face and I was like, hey now, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> She did. She got really excited, and then when she found out my kids were only nine and 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 six at the time, I was like, I, I don't, I don't know, I know. <laughs> so she said, she was like, well, do you know any other moms who are mama bears from the black community? And the sad part was that I could think of none. Mm. It was no one came to mind that I said, true, who one who really loves and supports? Ah, oh, I have no idea. And and that was the beginning of of Darisha saying, "Hey, well, will you be a part of this?" Mm -hmm. And we're gonna change that. That's that's the whole point of this film is that we want to grow and expand the Mama Bear movement, right? We want to mm -hmm. amplify their message with this film, and we want. So when we started the film in 2017, there was 2,000 moms. There are now over 30,000 moms, right, and growing mm -hmm. every day. And so we want that number to get bigger and bigger, and it to spread nationally, internationally. You know, that's the point. That's what I really hope will happen as a result of this film. I was going to say I saw some dads, too, in there, but I, you know, I want more yes. dads in there. Yes, yes. Yeah. There, you know, there were dads. There were lots of dads. But, you know, once we figured out that, I mean, initially, like this was going to be a, a tapestry of voices. There was going to be clergy. There was going to be many more members of the LGBTQ community. And then, you know, my editor's like, so, you know, it's like 90 minutes, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and you know you have three subjects right so yeah. three characters three people <laughs> that you need to like flesh out their whole lives so i don't know about all those other people yeah <laughs> so but That's what we real. decided to do is to use them uh, use those other stories in our impact campaign so we're going to edit great videos of other stories that didn't make it into the film that are incredible stories anyway and and make them available on our website yeah, you have 30,000 of them now. Pick, <laughs> pick yeah. you have a, a big pool to choose from. Well, Lord, anyway. I didn't interview all of those people, but, <laughs> but yeah, well, Aaron, quite a few. Yeah, before we got on the interview, Aaron was saying each story could have been their own episode, their own short film yeah, or feature. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we hope follow-ups uh, with, with, with the main characters of this one will be part of that campaign as well. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really great. Really enjoyed the film. We were speaking with director Jerisha Kai and participant in the film Tammy Terrell Morris of the documentary Mama Bears, premiering at South by Southwest 2022. Thanks and congratulations. Thank you.
Welcome, Bitch Talkers. We have two special guests on the show. We have director Jamie Meltzer and subject slash artist Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg from the South by South short doc, not even for a moment do things stand still. Thank you so much for being on Bitch Talk. Hi, Erin. Hi, Angela. Thanks for having us. You know what? Um, I'm going to go with Jamie. Can you please tell our audience uh, what this short film is about? So the, it's a 15-minute film, and it's an immersive observational documentary film about Suzanne's amazing art installation, which was on the National Mall this past September, um, where people would dedicate um, a small white flag among a sea of almost 700,000 white flags uh, for people who had died from COVID. And the film is just a way of connecting people emotionally to that those individual losses and also to reflect on the collective loss that we've all experienced. Susanna, I, I want to turn to you first. Um, thank you for this in- installation. I got, and thank you, Jamie, for this film. I got all the feels. <laughs> um, it was hard to kind of focus at times because it was so emotional. Um, and, and I'm curious, Suzanne, how you came up with this idea and, and sort of what were the steps, steps you had to take to make it happen? Because you're, you're doing this on the National Mall. It's a, it's a big deal. Well, thank you so much for um, having us. It was an immensely important piece of art because the number of deaths in America had grown so large that people just didn't even understand the death toll numbers. And so I realized that as a visual artist, I had the power to use art to help people understand the magnitude of our loss by allowing them to to personalize individual flags for loved ones whom they had lost. We amplified the understanding and we activated that empathy, that empathetic response um, for all the visitors who saw the art. The trick though, was it was just so beautiful and so immense that it became a photo op. Mm -hmm. And yet in reality, what people brought to the installation was incredibly important. They brought emotions, their sadness, um, sometimes anger and frustration, but we had to capture that. And that's why Jamie's work with this film is just so incredibly important because he could, could, through the art of filmmaking, capture the magic that happened in those flags. Jamie, to bring you um, into the conversation, how did you two connect and collaborate on this project? How did that happen? Well, like um, Suzanne um, called me up. It was a Zoom actually. (laughs) And um, she told me about the installation and invited me to discuss it. And I didn't know exactly what to expect, I'll say at first, um, but I would say within a few hours of, of filming on the first day, and we were there as a film crew with two different cameras for three days. But within the first hour or so, I was just overwhelmed again with the sense of emotion that people brought with it, with the sense of intimacy that they had with these individual flags. and with this sense of the scale of the loss that the art gives you access to. I mean, it really makes you think and pause. And I think felt like the film should do that, should provide this kind of pause for us to look back because I think we're with numbers so big and with the scale of it so unimaginable, um, we need space to process this. Even those of us that haven't lost loved ones, we've all lost something in the last few years, very significant something. And um, 
so I, you know, hoped that the film could do what the art did so well, which just was to provide a space for that and to provide a sense of dignity and respect for those who had lost someone. Because I didn't even feel like the larger culture was really honoring that. And, 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 and that just seemed like there was a space um, to do that. And to piggyback off that, Jamie, normally when you're shooting a doc or a mini doc in, in this case, you're following someone for a while. But but in this in this project, you're observing these people just in their most intimate, private seeming moments, and then they're gone. So can you talk about just how you're just quickly catapulted into like their their, their deepest emotional states and, and also how you picked who you're going to film? Yeah. So, well, the way that Suzanne had the installation set up is there were these stations that were staffed by volunteers and the volunteers would invite people who have had someone lost to COVID to make a, you know, write a tribute on one of these small white flags. And so when we, as a film crew, saw people filling these out, we would approach them and talk to them very briefly and just ask them if they would be okay with us filming them as they planted a flag. And and then we would set up the camera a few hundred feet away from them with a very long lens um, so that we were able to give them a sense of privacy that they were able to have a natural moment that they were going to have with the flags. And we also set them up with a wireless mic, a, lav a lavalier mic, so that we could get very, very close audio. So we could be both far from them, giving them that respect, but also be close enough so that it would be impactful um, in the actual film. And um, we had two crews doing this for three days. So we did interact with a lot of people and they were very intense interactions, but as you were saying, it's true that in a more traditional documentary, you're going to spend a lot of time with the subjects and the participants in the film. With this one, we, it was really these sort of ephemeral moments that we were able to capture. Um, and I'm just really thankful for the people that participated in the film and were able to share um, in that way. Suzanne, how, how did you come up with this art installation did you come up with it specifically or did the National Mall folks come to you and say, this is what we're thinking of? Do you have an idea how to do this? Because it's such a brilliant idea to, with the flags. It's so simple, but it conveys such a message when you see it all encompassing. Yes, thanks. I think that what it really does is it brings people in with its beauty and then delivers the message. Um, I worked with, it was my idea. I, as an artist, realized that we were just discounting certain human lives, the lives of the elderly, the lives uh, from communities of color, and in our in this demand that we open up the economy. So early on in the pandemic, I knew I needed to art in that regard. But when we had reached about 180,000 deaths, that's when I realized um, that people were positioning this just as a statistic and that we had to stand up and say, wait a minute, every single one of these was, an, was a life that mattered. And so um, it was my idea to approach the National Park Service um, with the idea, and they quickly got back with me. And when I asked for 10 acres, they said, use 20. <laughs> when I wow. said, I can't do it unless I have two weeks, which is unprecedented, usually mm -hmm. are three days on the National Mall, they gave me three weeks. Um, for install the install and presentation of it and so i have to say the national park service was incredibly 
supportive partner in this because without them this could never have happened and so this was truly a an unusual art exhibition and it was the largest one i yeah. i found out on the national mall since the aids quilt wow um, but, and a lot of people saw it as a photo opportunity but that's where jamie's just incredible emotional intelligence and sensitivity in filmmaking came to bear because Jamie, through capturing these instances of people personalizing flags, really has captured for posterity the essence of what happened those 17 days on the mall. Yeah, and, and normally as an artist, you have an art installation, you prepare it, you set up everything the way you want it to. But in this case, uh, I believe you said uh, that throughout the course of the two-week run, you had to plant more than 2000 flags during the oh. run of of the installation so how was that emotional turmoil it was a, it was a living organism thank you so much for noting that because gosh that was like one of the hardest elements of this exhibition day after day i had to keep planting flags and i i so just wanted to enter in, in, to you know to um to talk with the people who were visiting and yet I had to do it while planting flags because so many people were dying and we committed to keeping the art current every day of the exhibition. So yes, it started at 666,000 flags and ended over 700,000. That was, it was so tough. That was the toughest part of the day when I changed the large scale sign to note the new number of deaths. I wanted to ask Suzanne one last question because um, I was looking through your bio and, and seeing what kind of um, subjects you pick. And I know um, a lot of the subjects you choose are pretty weighty. And I wanted to know if you're allowed to speak about any of any of your future subjects or projects you're thinking of. Doesn't have to be, you know, well, in concrete yet. But let me just tell you one thing before the, just as we were closing down for the pandemic i i had just finished the seventh in a seven installation art series called the empty fix project and that is about drug addiction i traveled around the country interviewing people addicted to drugs to create art that would help people understand what makes people vulnerable to addiction and to decrease the stigma well then i come and i do this this um art on the national mall try to increase empathy. And it got politicized. The pandemic was so politicized, so I got to thinking about it and what made people be so extreme and approach the pandemic in a politicized nature. And I realized that people are actually addicted to their politics, to their ideology. Research shows that when people see information that supports their ideologic leanings, that they actually get a dopamine rush in the head, <laughs> in their brains. That's the same that happens when an addict encounters his, his or her drug. So, so some of my art from here on will combine the two concepts of um, politicization and addiction. And I think that we need to speak to why we are going to the extremes and try to pull people back to the center. Yep. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, like, I mean, we're, we're seeing it now. Um, well, I just want to say thank you so much to director Jamie Meltzer and subject slash artist Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg for their South by Southwest short, Not Even for a Moment Do Things Stand Still. Thank you so much for being on Bitch Talk. Thank you so much thank for having you. us. Yeah, thank you. 
Thanks again to our friends at Lost Republic Whiskey for sponsoring the podcast. You can find them at lostrepub.com or find it at your local pub and bottle shop. Tell them that Bitch Talk sent you. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. 